All right. Uh, before I dive in, I just wanted to give you a quick update on a message that I gave a few weeks ago where I talked about what do we believe is the vision that God has for our church this year? And specifically, it was to put a permanent campus in Rochester. Every time we move from a mobile site to a permanent site, we reach hundreds, thousands of more people, and especially people who don't normally go to church, which is a really big deal to us. And so I invited everybody to be a part of this, to say, God, we're going to give to put a campus in Rochester, we believe, to reach hundreds and thousands of people for Christ. I wanted to give you a quick update on where we're at. You can see the number on the wall behind me. We have raised to this point $6,257,916 in attempts. That's fantastic. I just want to thank those of you who give. People ask me all the time, every time I'm at a campus, I just see people who serve, people who give, people who pray for this church. You really, truly are what makes it what it is. We could not reach people in Rochester without you. And so if you gave to this, I hope when you hear stories of life change, you know that you were a part of that. But maybe you're here today and you're like, you know, I, I missed that message. I, I, you, I want to encourage you, go back and watch it. November 11th and 12th, you'll kind of hear the heart behind it. I'm just kind of giving an update, but I want you to hear the heart behind why we feel this is important, because we have a goal to reach $13 million by the end of June. So we've got a ways to go. We're about halfway there. And maybe you're a person who says, well, I, I didn't give last time because like, I don't have a million dollars. My hope is that all of us would participate in some way. Even if it's just whatever amount you think is too insignificant, I believe that we are better together, and I would rather have more people participating than like one person come in and just kind of carry the whole way. Because what I love about this is an opportunity for us to take ownership to reach people who are far from God. Maybe you're like a couple that I ran into a couple days ago, and they're like, oh, we wanted to do it, but the little invite card, the Bermuda Triangle on my kitchen island, it just... I don't know where things go, but it was sitting there one day, and then the next day it was gone. I'm the person in our family who throws stuff. My wife blames everything on me, and it's probably true. But maybe it got thrown away, and here's how you can give. You can stop off of the Next Steps area in your lobby, or you can go on our website, eaglebrookchurch.com. All right, today we are in the third week of a series called Burn the Ships. And last week I gave the story that kind of shared the origin behind that title. Today I want to give you an example of it. In the 1980s, Greg Laurie, who is a pastor, an evangelist, if you saw the movie Jesus Revolution, he was featured in that movie, he held a crusade. So he invited people in California, anybody who wanted to come, to come, and he was going to tell, talk about Jesus. And when he was done, a drug dealer came down front to give his life to Christ. And after the drug dealer prayed with the prayer team member, he reached into his pocket and he handed the prayer team member his pager. Some of you are like, what's a pager? Is that what you use to find your iPhone when your iPhone's lost? You bet, no, no, that's not it. Back in the olden days, we had these things called pagers. And if you wanted to get a hold of someone, you would page them, and they could see your phone number on the pager. And then they'd have to go to a pay phone to call you back. It was all rather primitive, but this is how we communicated with one another. And the reason the drug dealer handed over his pager was because that's how he did drug deals. And what he was saying in that moment is, I don't need this anymore. I have burned that ship. A few days later, the prayer team member called this guy on the phone just to kind of see how he was doing. And, and he said, hey, what do, you, what do you got going on? And the former drug dealer now said, you know, I'm just out cutting the grass. Prayer team member said, oh, getting some yard work done, are you? He said, no, I'm mowing down my marijuana plants. 
I mean, I love this guy. He's just going all in. He's like, I am done with my old life. And so the question we've been asking in this series is, what is it from your old life that you need to be done with? Well, what is it from your old life that you need to say, I have burned that ship. I am letting go of that. Maybe for you, it's a phone number in your contact list that you need to delete and just say, I'm not going back to that relationship. Maybe for you, there's bottles of alcohol that need to be poured out and you need to make a commitment to sobriety. But what is it in your life that you're saying, I cannot go back to that again? There was an old hymn that said, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Today's message is titled, Letting Go of People Pleasing. Anyone here struggle with people pleasing? Some of you are like, I'd raise my hand, but I'm worried what people are going to think when I raise my hand in church. And that's probably you then, if, if that's how you were thinking through that whole situation. If you struggle with people-pleasing, most often you will find yourself struggling to make decisions because you're just worried what other people think and what their opinion is going to be. If you find yourself laying awake at night and you're sitting there and you're like, are they mad at me? Oh, mad. They haven't texted me back in 22 minutes. They must be mad at me then people-pleasing might be something that you're struggling with in your life. For a lot of people, it comes up that when we're with certain people, we act a certain way, we behave a certain way, and then when we get with other people, we act and behave differently. So when you're with your church friends, you might act and behave a certain way, and then you get with your school friends or your golf buddies, and you tend to be a little bit different. I heard one person say that when you try to please everyone, there's at least one person who's going to remain unhappy. And that person is you. It is miserable to live your life going around going, okay, I need to make this person happy and this person happy, and now they are mad at me. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that we adopt this attitude of like, I don't care. I don't care what anybody else thinks. I don't care what they, and that's not what I'm talking about. We should care to a certain degree, but that's not people-pleasing. People-pleasing is not having an empathy for how other people are feeling or thinking about a certain situation. Here's what people-pleasing is. People-pleasing is when you don't do what God wants you to do because you're so worried what other people want you to do. People-pleasing is when you don't do what God wants you to do because you're so concerned with trying to do what other people want you to do. And the Bible addresses this head-on. Galatians chapter 1, here's what Paul writes. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Notice what he's saying here. He's saying it is impossible for me to live my life trying to please other people and at the same time serve God's purposes. Mutually exclusive. Can't try to please people all the time and at the same time be a servant of Christ. When I was in high school, I was not a Christian and I drank alcohol. Why? Well, at the time, I would have vehemently denied this. I would have said, no, it's not because of my friends. It's not because of other people. It's just because I want. No. As I look back on it now, I realize very clearly I did that because I wanted to fit in. I wanted other people to accept me. 
And this is what they were doing. And I thought if I was going to be accepted by them, well, then I'm going to have to do those same kinds of things. If you are a middle school student, high school student, college age student, you got to get this squared away. You got to get this squared away. Are you living to please other people or are you living to please God? Are you living your life going, okay, well, here's what my friends want me to do. And if I'm going to be accepted and if they're going to approve of me, here's what I need to do. Or are you the kind of person who says, I'm putting a stake in the ground and I am here to please God with my life. I know middle school students, high school students, college students, some of them, we, adults do this too, but we've got one foot in this world and then we've got one foot in the God world. And we kind of just go back between those two and I'm telling you, you got to get this squared away. Who are you living to please? I wish I could tell you that as an adult, it gets easier. I don't think it does. Several years ago, I was sitting at the lunch table at our offices and the topic of growing up poor came up. And a bunch of people had stories. And this one person was telling a story about how their parents used to ration out French fries at McDonald's. So they'd go to McDonald's. Their parents would order a large fry. They'd be like, okay, you get 10 fries. You get 10 fries. And their siblings would, they'd kind of split it all up. And several people had stories like this. And then they looked at me. And I wanted to fit in. I wanted to say, oh, we ate uncooked ramen noodles because the gas and electric got shut off. I wished I had a story. But I really didn't, but I wanted to fit in so bad, I sort of looked at him and I was like, yeah. Sort of indicating like, man, me too. I, I grew up like that. And our middle school pastor at the time, she just blurted out, she goes, you grew up in Wyzetta. You weren't poor. And I was like, yeah, we were pretty middle class. You're right, pretty middle class. Now, why did I lie about that? Why did I lie at the lunch table? Because I wanted to fit in. That's where most lies happen, by the way. Lunch table, dentist office. <laughs> Everybody lies at the dentist office. How many times do you floss? Three times. Yeah, no, you do not floss three times a day, okay? <laughs> but I still struggle with this. If my wife asks me a question and I don't think she's going to be pleased with the answer, I am so tempted to lie just to please her. As a leader in this church, I can remember a specific situation where I did not confront someone that I needed to confront. I needed to hold a coworker accountable. I needed to move in on some behavior in their life, and I did not do it. And the reason I did not do it is because I was scared. I thought they were going to be mad at me. I didn't think they were going to like me. I didn't have the emotional energy for that conversation, and so I just took a pass. Here is the question that Paul writes in Galatians 1. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Here's what I've learned about people pleasing, and I've learned this the hard way. I cannot control what other people think. You cannot control what other people think. We can influence it. I can influence what you think about me. You can influence what I think about you, but I cannot control it. I can't control what you think about me. I cannot control your behavior. How many of us have a coach, a teacher, a boss, a friend, a coworker? We spend so much energy trying to dress a certain way and act a certain way and look a certain way so that we can gain their approval. And sadly, in some cases, we spend very little time thinking, God, how can I please you? It's one of the reasons why I encourage everybody, write out your priorities, write out your values in life. 
my values in life are God, marriage, kids, my health, and leading this church. I want to have a great relationship with God. I want to have a great marriage. I want to have a great relationship with my kids. I want to be as healthy as I can be, and I want to do the best I can leading this church in the season of life that I have. And here's what I've noticed. Every time I've taken a step forward in one of those areas, here's what happens. There's somebody who's not happy. I remember about 10 years ago, there were some decisions that leaders in this church made, not me, but others. And looking back from you know, 10 years later, they were great decisions. It, it, it led to many people coming to Christ and great things happening in our church. But when those decisions were made, there was people who were not happy. And they left. And they were upset. And every time we've taken a step forward like that, there's been at least one person who's like, yeah, I don't like it. In my own life, when I became a follower of Christ in college, I remember going home for the summer. And I was hanging out with my high school friends again, and I had a high school friend who looked me right in the eye and said, I liked you better before Jesus. They said, you had more spunk. And it may be a sign that I still had a little bit of spunk. I looked at him and I said, it's not that I have less spunk. It's that I have less sin. And you just don't like that. But I'm done with that old life. I'm moving forward into the life that God has for me. My wife and I, we go on a date night every week. Go out to dinner, we go on a walk. And there's been times when there's other events that people invite me to, hey, you should come to this. And I've had to say, no, I can't. I've already have something with my wife planned. Were people disappointed? I, I'm guessing there maybe were some. But I cannot live my life for the approval of other people. I have to live my life based on the values that I believe that God has given to me. I have to live my life to please God. In Numbers chapter 13, God is speaking to Moses, who was leading the nation of Israel at that time. And he tells him, he says, hey, send out 12 spies. Send 12 spies out into this, what I'm calling the promised land. It was a land that was filled with milk and honey, which meant it had resources and it was fertile land for agriculture. I want you to send out 12 spies and find out if the people who live there, if you're going to be able to conquer them or not. But here's what you have to understand about this. God had already promised them the land. That's why it's called the promised land. All they had to do is trust God that God was going to keep his promises. And so these 12 spies come back after scouting out the land. And Joshua, who would go on to lead the nation of Israel, he and his friend Caleb came back. And here's what they said. They said, let's go at once to take the land. Because we could certainly conquer it. The other 10 spies came back, and here was their report. They said, the land we explored will swallow any up who live there. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there. The descendants of Anak, we felt like grasshoppers next to them. And that is what we looked like to them. You ever felt that way before? You ever felt like a grasshopper, that you were just small and you were inferior and you were weak? Especially when you were comparing yourself maybe to someone else who didn't have those qualities? What's interesting about how this is worded is they not only feel like grasshoppers, but then they say, and that's what we looked like to them. But as I went back and I looked at it in the context of the verses around it, it never says that that's what the people saw them as. 
never says that these descendants of Anak looked at them and were like, you guys are like grasshoppers. I mean, you're just so weak and so little. Never says that. In other words, they were taking their self-perception and they were transferring it on to other people. And we do this. We look at ourselves and go, I am weak. I'm inferior. I'm so small. That's how other people must see me. I'm unlovable. I mean, my whole life I felt unlovable, so there's no way I could be in a relationship with that person because their family's so great and my family's kind of messed up. And I, I'm unlovable, so they must see me as unlovable. We tend to label ourselves and then we transfer that label onto other people. Here's what you need to know about faith faith is not believing in yourself, faith is not, hey, you're not a grasshopper, you're a lion. You just need to roar. You're a snowflake. You're just, you're so unique. You're one of, that is not faith. Here's what faith is. Faith is believing in the promises of God. Faith is going, my God is all powerful. My God is all knowing. My God is more than able. And that is the kind of faith that Joshua and Caleb had. When Joshua and Caleb looked at this situation, they looked at the people of Anak and they're like, yeah, they're huge. No doubt about it. I mean, they're big. But compared to God, they, they look rather small. And then the other 10 spies, looking at that exact same situation and circumstance, they came back and said, whoa, those people are so big. And as a result, God feels small. In his book, When People Are Big and God is Small, author Ed Welch says this. He says, fear of man is such a part of our human fabric that we should check for a pulse if someone denies it. He goes on to give some examples of what a fear of man is. He says that when you are paralyzed to make decisions because you're so worried about others' opinions, it's a sign that you have a fear of man. So says if you're easily embarrassed, if you get defensive or jealous or you tell white lies to look better, it's a sign you might have a fear of man. It says if you easily give in to peer pressure from other people and give in to temptation as a result, it's probably fear of man. This next one's going to kind of hit some of us between the eyes a little bit. If you are overcommitted because you can't say no, it's probably driven from a fear of man. It's probably something in you that when someone says, can you do that? Yeah. Can you come to this? Sure. And you just keep saying yes, 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 because you, you just don't want to say no. It's probably a fear of man. Now, all of us, to a certain extent, have a fear of man, but you might be wondering, well, so what? Like, well, who, who cares if, if that's how it is? Well, what's the big deal? It was a big deal to the Israelites because in Numbers 14, here's what God says to them. He says, you will all die here in the wilderness. If you're going to look at the people living in that land and go, oh, they're too big and we're grasshoppers, and, and we, then guess what's going to happen? You're going to continue wandering in the wilderness because people looked big to you and God looked small. And I see this all the time, a student who's like, well, I really want to go to this Christian college, but this, my parents went to this other one. They really want me to go to that school. I really feel led to go into ministry, but, you know, so-and-so isn't going to like that very much. I really feel like I need to obey God and stop doing that, but my friends, they're probably not going to accept me. They're probably not going to invite me to come hang out anymore. And really what that is, is that is a fear of man. 
And it's why some of us continue to wander through the wilderness. He says, you will all die in the wilderness. None of you who are 20 years old or older will enter the land that I swore to give you. The only exceptions will be Caleb and Joshua. Christian rapper, I wish that was my title, Christian rapper, <laughs> Lecrae, he said this, if you live for people's acceptance, you will die from their rejection. I think he's on to something. If you're living your life and going, but I need that person to accept me and I need that person to approve of me, when they don't accept you, when they don't approve of you, when they have some negative feedback to give you or criticism, often we just kind of emotionally fall apart because we're dying from their rejection. Here's what I'm praying and hoping for every one of us today. My prayer and hope is that you would stop living for the approval of other people and you would live from the approval of God. It's a big difference between those two. We are not living for the approval of God. It's not that if we do enough good works that God's up there going, well, maybe if you do one more good work, then I'll approve of you. God already demonstrated his approval through Jesus Christ on the cross. You don't have to try to do good works to earn your salvation. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you don't have to live for the approval of God. You're living from the approval of God. You know how God feels about you. You know what God says about you. And so you get to live your life with the confidence and the peace that I'm not living for the approval of other people. I get to live from the approval of God. How do you do that? How do you, how do you overcome some of those people-pleasing tendencies? The first way is this. You have to embrace your weaknesses. You ever been watching TV at home by yourself? All of a sudden you hear the garage door go up. It's your spouse. It's your parents. And quickly you shut off the TV and pretend you're doing something really busy and productive. You ever done, you ever done this? I, I've done this. I hear the garage door going up. I'm going to get over there and start scrubbing some dishes, you know? And the person walks in. And you're like, well, what have you been doing? I mean, I'm, look at me. I'm scrubbing these dishes. Have you ever been driving down the freeway and there's a person next to you and they want to get over and their blinker's on? You don't want to let them in. You're like, I am not letting one car in front of me right now. I will not let this person in. But you do not want to look like a jerk. And so here's what you do. You start fiddling with your radio. You start looking the other way. You just pretend you don't see them. That way you're not a jerk. You're just kind of an unobservant, nice person, right? You just, sorry, I didn't see your blinker. Anybody ever done that? I've stooped pretty low in my day, but I don't think I've ever done that. Uh, now, why do people fake things? We all do it. Why do we fake it at times? We fake it because we want other people to think better of us. We want other people to look at us and think we're better than we really are, and so we try to fake it. I was reading through the book of Acts, and in chapter 5, it talks about a married couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And I just want to read to you what the story says about them. It says, there was also a man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, but he claimed it was the full amount. His wife agreed to this deception. So here's this man, Ananias, and his wife Sapphira. They have a, a plot of land. They sell the land. They give some of the money to the apostles and to the church, but they don't give all of it. But they tell them it is all of it. Why, why would they do that? I mean, wouldn't the apostles, shouldn't they be happy that they 
receive some money to go towards the work of God? Like, are they, it was Ananias and Sapphira's plot of land. They could do with the money what they wanted. And were people going to be upset and entitled thinking it was their money? It really wasn't. They, why did they feel the need to lie about this? Well, a few verses earlier, there's a man named Barnabas who had a field. He sold it, and he gave the full amount to the apostles. And I'm guessing that in the church, there was people who said, wow, Barnabas, like, you're really generous. You are really godly. That was incredible that you sold your field and you gave all of that money to further the work of God through the church. And Ananias and Sapphira wanted that. They didn't want people to look at them and go, well, that was nice of you, but you're not as godly as Barnabas. You're not as generous as Barnabas. They wanted people to look at them and go, you're so spiritual. You're so generous. Wow, I can't believe it. So they lied. If you know the end of the story, it does not end well. Ananias and Sapphira both lose their life for lying to the Holy Spirit. I've heard Pastor Craig Grishel say this before. He says, we may impress people with our strengths, and, and we certainly try, but we connect around our weaknesses. I told this story once before, but there was a woman that I met one time. She was from a different church, and she was just telling me about this event that she went to at her church, and they had a mixer. And she was an introvert, so she was like, nightmare, you know, meeting new people, don't want to meet new people. And so they paired off with someone, and she got paired off with the worship leader. Even worse, this woman had been leading worship, it was like a woman's event, and they paired off, and they were talking to each other. And so the worship leader kind of tried to make a connection. She said, do you like music? This woman was like, no, she said, I can't sing at all. And worship seat leader said, well, do you have kids? She said, no, I don't have children. At this point, it was getting awkward. It was like, okay, we're, this isn't going anywhere. And so in a last-ditch effort, the worship leader said, are you married? The woman I was talking to was married, but her husband was incarcerated at the time. But do you tell that to one of the worship leaders in your church? She decided to take a risk. She said, yeah, I'm married, but my husband is incarcerated. Silence. Worship leader just stared at her. And finally, she blurted out, my husband's incarcerated right now, too. She said, but I haven't told anybody in church because I was afraid of what they would think. These two women went on to become friends. They started a ministry to help other women whose husbands are incarcerated. And they learned this principle that you may impress people with your strengths, but you will connect around your weaknesses. See, some of us right now, we're trying to live like this perfect life. We want everybody to look at us and go, wow, like they look perfect and their house looks perfect and they act perfect and they, they just got, they've got it all together. And then we transfer that onto our kids. And are like, you better look perfect and you better behave perfect because it's a reflection upon me. So you need to do that as well. And we tend to think if people knew my weaknesses, they wouldn't accept me. If they knew my struggles, they wouldn't like me. And I just want to read to you a verse from 2 Corinthians. And I hope that as you hear this verse, that it's God speaking to you, that giving you what you need today. Here's God speaking. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. You don't need that person's approval. You don't need that person's acceptance. You don't need to look perfect in that person's eyes. God says, my grace, my undeserved favor is sufficient for you. And so Paul then tags onto this and he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses 
so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In other words, embrace your weaknesses. Here's the second way to overcome a tendency to people please, and it's this. It's accept who God says that you are. Talked last week a little bit about labels. We, we tend to do this, don't we? We label ourselves. We go, oh, I'm a grasshopper. I mean, I'm just small. I'm weak. Some of us have other labels that we give to ourselves. We look at ourselves and go, I'm an addict. It's all I am. It's all, it's all I see. Some of us look at ourselves and we go, I'm a divorcee. Just going to carry that label the rest of my life. I'm the black sheep of the family. I'm overweight. I'm unattractive. I'm unsuccessful. I'm a failure. I'm a loser. I'm weak. I'm unlovable. Some of the labels that we give to ourselves are the product of what we experienced growing up. I know a woman who her whole life was told, you're beautiful. And that's a nice thing, but at some point along the way, it started to become her identity. And as she began to age and felt that her beauty was not what it once was, she thought, who am I? We all probably know someone who used to play sports, and then the sport ended, the ball stopped bouncing, and all of a sudden they're like, who am I? And my whole life, that's, that's been the label that I've given to myself. And so this leads to the question, who has the right to label you? To answer that question, I want you to think about the shirt that you're wearing right now. There's a label on the back might say Gap or Banana Republic, might say Nike, Adidas, but there's a label. Who has the right to label that shirt? Well, it's the maker. The maker is the one who has the right to label it. In the same way, who has the right to label you? Is it other people? Is it what do they, what do they think about you? Is it yourself and how you see yourself? No, it's your maker. It's the Lord your God, the maker of heaven and earth. And what does God say about you? God says, if you are a follower of Christ, you are chosen. You are forgiven. You are new. You are a child of God. When my son Jasper was three years old, I took him to one of my other son's conferences at school. And, and my son, as he was leaving, he, my older son, he kind of made a joke about Jasper to his teacher. He's like, oh, he's such a troublemaker, which wasn't true at all. He was just the sweetest kid. But, but the teachers laughed. And so when we got into the hallway, I looked down and I could see Jasper was about to cry. Just a little three-year-old boy. And I don't even think he knew what they had really said. He just knew there was adults laughing at him. And so I pulled him into the bathroom to get away from other people. We went in the stall, and, and I kind of kneeled down to his level. And I said, Jasper, I love you. I said, even when you don't listen, even when you don't obey daddy, I said, I love you because you are my son. And you never really know what a three-year-old understands and what they don't understand, but he didn't say a word. He just looked at me, and then he went, and gave me one of the biggest hugs that he's ever given to me. And so we sat there by the toilet, <laughs> having one of the best father-son moments that I can remember. I wonder if some of us here today need to let God just go. 
and to be reminded that you are his son, you are his daughter. God came down to our level in Jesus Christ. Jesus left heaven and he came to earth. He came to our level. And the Bible says that God so loved you, he so loved the world. And he gave Jesus so that you could be called a child of God. So that you could know you are a son of God. You are a daughter of God. You are his. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, you have to be in Christ, but if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. When God looks at you, that's the label that he gives you. He gives you the label of new creation, forgiven, chosen, child of God. And here's what I want you to know today. You don't have to worry what other people think about you when you know what God says about you. Let's pray together as we close. Lord, there are some of us here who have been doing things because we want to be accepted and approved. I, I, I do it. We all do it. God, I pray right now that you would take away a fear of man and you would give us a healthy fear of God. I pray for the courage and the strength to live our life to please you and not to please everyone else. And God, there's going to be some crossroads. There's going to be some hard moments where we have to decide who are we living for, who are we going to please. And I pray for the conviction this week, God, this year, that when those moments come, we will put a stake in the ground and we will say, I am living my life to please God. God, I'm living my life from your approval. And I have the peace and the confidence of knowing that I can trust in your promises. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if there's a prayer need in your life, a prayer request in your life, it's a prayer team down front at your campus. We'd love to pray with you. Have a great weekend.